being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong that used to be my go-to uh that would be basically just like the one thing that i would drink and then i moved to recently having manhattans after my grandma passed that was her favorite drink and so that's like when i do drink now that's my that's my go-to what's in a manhattan uh i think there's like technically two ways to make it it's whiskey vermouth and either bitters or like uh grenadine like cherry cherry mm. juice i've 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 had them with bitters and then typically a cherry in there and maybe yeah. a little bit of sugar mixed in they're really good though mm. yeah it's a nice little nice little something something they go down like water and they will get you lit <laughs> yeah <laughs> my, my wife has been getting into making virgin cocktails but the thing is a lot of like you guys probably know a lot of drinks don't really probably taste good on their own so like without <laughs> the alcohol you're just like drinking like like sour a, mix yeah, yeah. Like a sour like a like grenadine syrup like it's just not like good no it's not the same <laughs> yeah i've i have done that before and it's it's usually pretty repulsive I think my, my, my real opinion is that like the alcohol typically cuts the sweetness. Yeah. Right. But without the alcohol, it's just like super sugary. Yeah. Either like margarita, I could see a certain type of margarita being fine. Mojitos. I do like those like, Oh yeah. But like, there's not like that many drinks that probably stand on their own. Mm -mm. No. What did you get on that seat? Uh, that cheeseburger there. Yeah, what do you got? I need it's, details. Sandwich details. It is two patties, two pieces of cheese, two slices of tomato, mustard, mayo, and ketchup. This is my second cheeseburger of the day. Did you make that? Um. So <laughs> my father was nice enough to drive over and bring hamburger patties. <laughs> and so I assembled it. But I did not. I did not cook because I was burgers. just like, "How did you get that so fast?" It does not look like a or something. He's got the George Foreman grill in his kitchen. So <laughs> yeah, he's just, just busting them out. But yeah, I have not had dinner yet, so I'm gonna I'm gonna munch on this. Can you hear it in the microphone when I chew? I mean, maybe with like, I'll mute myself when I'm yeah, chewing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. When Boyd gets going, probably it's fine. But yeah, yeah, this stuff, you know, I might cut some of it anyway. So. The other day when I was, just because earlier you were like, I have to go to the bathroom. The other day at work, I was on a Zoom call with my coworkers and like, <laughs> without thinking, I was like talking to them. It wasn't like anything super formal, but I just was like, all right, I'll be back in a sec. I got to piss. And they roasted me for so long because <laughs> I like didn't have the courtesy to say like, I have to use the restroom or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just going tinkle. Like, I don't know what the, what the <laughs> issue is here. I would have been way more mad at you if you would have said going tinkle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, then it would have been a bit. But this, this was just legitimately me, like, just being, like, you know, the way that I talk to, like, my friends. Right. They're also, yeah. <sighs> yeah, that's a tough one. Anyways, hopefully, hopefully I've set the stage for, like, proper pension scholarship. That was That was my goal. Well, I mean, you did an excellent job. We'll see. You know, I don't know how proper. I trust you guys. <laughs> well i do like that dichotomy though where it's like you know that was the wrong way and then maybe we can get something closer to what it should be 
through, I think, both, like, the two things we're looking at, me and Boyd, like, very uh, interesting stuff. I have more faith in Jimmy, but I think, I, I think I've got something interesting here, at least. I mean, it might not be, uh, it might not be, you know, professional scholarship or anything, but, you know, I, I've got a little tale to tell, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm so stressed out because it looks like you're just in pitch black darkness. So, like, it's not, like, you're fine, right? Like, you're not going to get, like... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good. And, like, uh, a found footage movie where, like, the protagonist is, like, harried and the camera's like, listen, if you find this, you have to tell them the truth. You have to tell them, ah! And then, like, they're fucking ganked or whatever. Listen, pinching encoded some messages. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. No, there's a legitimate, uh, you know, we've got the, uh, the old, we got a Wendigo in these parts. And so Ooh, if nice. you start hearing some weird noises, you know, it's just, uh, it's just the Wendigo seeking revenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think we could probably get into it whenever you want, Boyd. Um, yeah. So I would start off by uh, saying I am a dumbass and I do not know shit about Dutch history. And so don't come at me with pronunciations <laughs> or like, oh, well, this actually happened in the context of like, do it yourself. If you, you know, if you've got your own, your own thing to say, you know, go nuts. I'm just, uh, I'm just a man. I'm, uh, you know, that, that's all I am. I think very few people are going to be coming at our heads if we botch the Dutch pronunciation. Have you seen those memes that are like, Dutch isn't even a real language. Look at how they say this. Like, <laughs> I, I haven't, but when I was going through some of the stuff, some of these names and some of their words, it's, it, it can't be real. It, it legitimately, it's, it's somebody like making things up. There's so many, like, I saw so many like cock and schluff and whatever, you know, whatever. Like there's so many like dirty words in their names. It's ridiculous. There's a saying in Dutch that's longer than this. I don't remember what it is, but it's like Nurkin and Dekirken. Like that's literally how it starts. <laughs> You can't convince me that they're real people. <laughs> of course it does, because they're filthy perverts. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Austin Powers joke about, uh, there's only two things I hate in this world. Uh, people who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. It's <laughs> for real. They're, they're monstrous yeah. people. Uh, <laughs> I, this is not only a, uh, I, I do hate Britain, but we're, we're going to get to it. Uh, the Dutch are just as bad, if not worse. And I think I think Pynchon would back me up on this one. Um, So to start with, like I mentioned before, I first got into Pynchon through Crypto Cuttlefish and I I want to just give him a big shout out because that guy did fantastic work and uh, I I owe a lot to him. And so uh, just wanted to get that out of the way that you should read his threads about Pynchon and everything else. And I want to kind of reiterate the point that CJ made here that uh, or that we or that we talked about uh, during CJ section that Pynchon teaches you how to make connections and shows you how to search for important events in history um, and recognize what is important and what isn't. And so like part of that is the the multi-layer multi-meaning thing. Like uh, one of you guys mentioned breadcrumbs that he's absolutely laying breadcrumbs. And a lot of people uh, like they stop they like to nail down either one thing or, or just look at all of the breadcrumbs and then go, Oh, well, there's just so many around. How could I possibly follow any, you know, any of these? This sure looks like bread, right? Like, Oh, the ambiguity. It's like, well, you know, just because he's uh, laying down a lot of facts doesn't mean that you can't 
start somewhere, you know, pick one trail and follow it and follow it as far as you can, and then go back and pick another one up. Like it might take you a really long time, but it's a worthwhile endeavor. Um, and so don't, don't do that thing where you just like say, well, this is what it's about. That's, that's bullshit. Uh, because you, you'll pretty much never run out of things to, uh, learn about when you're learning through the lens of stuff that Pynchon talks about. And so with crying of lot 49, one of the things, I mean, maybe you guys would disagree, but I think communications networks, uh, kind of, that kind of runs through this book a little bit. Uh, that's one of the main, uh, themes. A central theme. Yeah, I would, I would argue that, you know, that's something that when you're looking into different, uh, when you're going down different rabbit holes regarding this book, uh, if you come up against uh, something that could be interpreted as a communications network or a method of communication, anything like that, you're, you know, you're probably on the, uh, the right trail. Because so many of the academics, like CJ was saying, are tapped into like, wow, Pynchon really seems to like to talk about TV, but it's like, no, you idiot. Like, he loves <laughs> right. to talk about communication systems, including like command and control systems. Yes. All types. <laughs> yes. And like, it's so much more than that. So, like, yeah, go ahead, go on. And so, what he does in Crying of Lot 49 is uh, he traces back the history of these communications networks and highlights the very real uh, House of Turn and Taxes. I, I, to say that they were important in the development of uh, communications networks is like the most ridiculous understatement you could possibly make. Uh, their role was they were the uh, they were granted the, the official postal monopoly of uh, like the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and like they were they were used by practically all of continental Europe. There were a couple of challengers to um, to their monopoly. Uh, there was one in France called uh, La Poste. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll, we'll, we'll talk, uh, we'll talk about them a little bit later. Um, and then there was another one from one of the Baltic States. I don't remember, uh, you know, where it was or when it was, but there were, there were rivals, um, in real life, not just the Tristro, this made up thing, but they were, you know, they, they were the foundation of, uh, modern communication systems. Uh, and so I would argue that the fact that he spends so much time talking about it is important. It's not just a, you know, like, oh, I want to tell this story and it's going to have like some male conspiracies. Like he's actually getting to something that's important for our modern world that started back in like the 15th century. And so a little overview, like I mentioned before, the Dutch thing, we're going to be talking about uh, the Dutch revolution. The Dutch revolution. Did they even have one is what most people would say. (laughs) They did. (laughs) They did. And believe it or not, it was actually, um, kind of important for the modern world uh it kind of set us you know along this path and you know some people say like uh, oh well, i you know people that are really edgy will say like uh oh well actually we've already had world war three well i would take that one step further and say there's only one world war and it started way back then uh pretty much with the dutch revolution and it's been going on ever since Ooh, interesting hypothesis let's see where it takes us you've piqued my interest that's that's my little overview. So uh, once again, I just want to reiterate that um, every time I read this book, I come away with something different. And this time I you know, got all hyper fixated on uh, the Dutch aspect. Um, it was really influenced by recently uh, I started reading that Venice's Secret Service book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's a <laughs> that's a great one. I would highly recommend uh, basically everybody digging into that. The world's first centralized intelligence organization. Uh, highly relevant to uh, <laughs> your interests if you're a fan of Program to Chill. 
the other thing that uh, coincidentally, you know, timed out real nice is uh, there was recently a podcast about John D by Sudcast, and that really uh, mm. that ended up pairing very nicely with this reread, right? So uh, as a starting point for getting into the meat here, um, I would like to talk about the real foundation for the origin of the Tristero. Uh, the, the one of the main things that Crying of Lot Forty Nine is or, you know, about or whatever. So the Dutch Rebellion. Uh, it was started against King Philip II, uh, one of the Habsburg rulers of Spain. That was one of the less inbred Habsburgs, right? <laughs> as far as I can tell, that was yeah. He was still like he, he still had like basic motor functions and stuff. Could still talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't just like twitching away on a throne or whatever. Um, and so it was like it was highly uh, religiously motivated. Um, like I said, I'm not like a Dutch history scholar. I'm not a scholar of the you know the whole Protestant thing, but. Uh, I, I know a little bit about that. The Dutch, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they were uh, like a bunch of different religious groups came to that area, right? And they were like doing their like early, I guess like the you know Catholic Church would call it heresies, right? And like yeah. they had like printing presses and they were like churning out Bibles and different. It was, yeah, it was a hotbed of revolutionary movement as far as uh, revolutionary movement went, you know, back in the day. And another interesting thing to note about King Philip II, while we're you know somewhat on the topic, is that uh, he was personally responsible for the intelligence services of Spain. Uh, he was one of the only rulers at the time who like took direct responsibility for any intelligence work that was being done. Um, like Elizabeth delegated to um, Francis Walsingham, I believe, was the guy who was in charge of uh, like their stuff, uh, and he kind of ran things for the British. Um, Venice, as you know, as I kind of mentioned before, they had a centralized uh, intelligence agency that was run by the Council of Ten. Uh, it was kind of more democratically operated. Ten people instead of one. <laughs> so, uh, but but Spain, that was uh, that was all in the hands of uh, Big King Phil. And so, at this point, <laughs> at this point in history, right, this is a. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. The, the Venetian uh, government is kind of in decline. Like they had some colonies. They had recently kind of gotten their ass kicked by the Ottomans. Um, and instead of like uh, really overtly turning on the, the Ottoman Empire, they decided that they were going to kind of like work with them covertly to weaken uh, the rest of the continental powers. Um, but once again, <laughs> if you get caught doing this kind of thing, you're uh, you're in the hot seat. And so uh, th- that's where the intelligence networks really came into play was everything had to be done in, uh, in relative secrecy. Right. And uh, so. France had a decent uh, intelligence network set up. Spain had a pretty good one. Uh, Venice had a pretty good one. The, you know, the Pope uh, was, was doing pretty well as far as that stuff goes. England was doing good, pretty good. The Dutch were not doing so hot as far as uh, intelligence work goes. And that's going to become important as this uh, kind of develops. And so everybody is kind of jockeying for world position at this point because uh, Marx talks about this. Uh, let me see if I can get the exact quote from Capital. This is a... Relevant to our interest, and it's a pretty interesting thing on its own. Uh, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the indigenous populace of that continent, the beginnings of the conquest and plunder of India, the conversion of Africa into a preserve for the commercial hunting of blacks, are all the things which characterize the dawn of the capitalist production. Uh, these idyllic proceedings are the chief moments of primitive accumulation. 
Hard on their heels follows the commercial war of the European nations, which has the globe as its battlefield. It begins with the revolt of the Netherlands from Spain, assumes gigantic dimensions in England's anti-Jacobin war, and is still going on in the shape of the opium wars against China. Straight fire. And so the, the period of history that we're talking about right here is, it, dude, he was, Marx was always on one, you know. And so this is really a, a, a tipping point. Uh, in you know world history uh, really because we were we're seeing the like the foundation of uh, primitive accumulation has been laid and capitalism is uh, starting to like you know start up it's start, the the gas is in the engine now um, and so whoever I just wanted to throw in there too I think like maybe this is an obvious point but like those networks can't exist without the communication systems. Oh no. Which is, which is like a really, instead of Pynchon being obsessed with like informational entropy or whatever bullshit the academics want to talk about, like, it's like, no, this is like functionally important to how capital works. Right. <laughs> like we're, yeah, we're seeing trade, uh, like world trade and colonization happen uh, and, and like lay the foundations for the world that we live in. And that none of that can be done without communication. Like you, otherwise you just have a colony out there that's, you know, going on its own. And if you leave a colony for too long, we all know what happens as far as that stuff goes. And so you need to be able to stay in control. And the only way that you can do that is with regular communication. And on top of that, I think that there's a certain proclivity uh, or I think it's sort of like the way maybe we tell history. I say the, we like the popular understanding almost is that like intelligence agencies like started and they like to maybe start with like the CIA, right? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, there was like the OSS, but then it's like, okay, well, you know, there was, there were British networks in the US trying to sway US public opinion. Okay. Well, turns out there were intelligence networks all the way back to pretty much when Marx cites the start of primitive accumulation. Yeah. No, it's incredible. So like intelligence networks, the accumulation of capital and these specifically like these technical like means of communication, they're all interlinked, right? Yes. Wait, 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 hang on, hang on. Well, I saw on Twitter that intelligence, like caring about the history of intelligence, that's for rubes. <laughs> it's all just like materialism. And if you're not doing materialism, unless you're just like looking at like numbers on a spreadsheet or, you know, I don't know, like they're caring about the CIA. Workers don't care about that. No, 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 it's not important. No, come they on. They just want to hear about like uh, how much it costs to make a linen coat. <laughs> <laughs> no, none of this has any sort of bearing on how, you know, the entire system of capitalism functions and maintains itself as an oppressive, you know. Cap, it's well, you no know, capitalism's. It's just a machine. There's no one. There's nobody at the at the levers. <laughs> Work, workers oh, don't not. like to hear who specifically is fucking them over. Like they just, <laughs> right? They want to hear about it in general terms. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So yeah. Uh. That's you know. Um. That's basically the the general scene. I think. Uh. You, you could argue is that. Uh. All, all of these countries are uh, they're jockeying for power, and because of the tensions, um, 
between them like overtly like uh they have to do a lot of covert stuff it ha- everything has to be kind of underhanded backstabby kind of because ostensibly they're they're all in this together and we're you know oh like we're pretty much all related on some level christendom right like <laughs> it's about defending you know catholicism and it's uh oh those evil heretical protestants and so like everybody's forming these um these general alliances um but then secretly working against each other right and so when you're working in secret uh I'm going to keep hitting this point. Communications networks are going to be key because you have to do things secretly. You have to do things privately. And the only way that you can do that is by maintaining a reliable uh, communications network and turn in taxes was uh, for the Catholic uh, powers. Uh, That was their go-to. That was their number one. That was how they got things done. And so the Dutch provided uh, an opportunity to weaken Spain, but because they were Protestant Uh, It was kind of difficult for anybody to support them without risking uh, serious enmity from the rest of the Catholic powers. The Catholic League would have uh, immediately, you know, united to a certain degree, more or less, to quash whoever it was that is overtly declaring themselves um, as aiding uh, as aiding the Dutch Revolution. And so the strongest push uh, in this whole thing was made by William of Orange, also known as William the Silent, to uh, court the Duke of Anjou the guy who was next in line for the French throne, uh, they wanted to make France the new overlords of the Dutch Republic. They were, they were just going to you know, uh, forfeit the whole self-rule thing uh, in the short term to be able to have protection from France. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, the Duke of Anjou died in 1584, and then William of Orange was assassinated by a Catholic fanatic <laughs> so uh, you know, keep that one in mind that it was, uh, we have a lone nut assassination, right? <laughs> and so Pynchon specifically mentions uh, March of 1585 when he's talking about a man named Jan Hinkart. Uh, in March of 1585, in real life, Jan Hinkart was returning from a diplomatic trip to France to the court of King Henry III. Um, and so the specific time period down to the month that uh, Pynchon brings this character into uh, the story of Crying of Lot 49 he was doing something really interesting. Uh, and it's, it, it's noted in history that that month he was returning from this, uh, from this trip. And so I started thinking, okay, well, what was this trip all about? Like, why did he get sent to the court of King Henry III? Um, it was an unsuccessful trip. I'll open with that, that it, uh, it didn't end up working out. They didn't fulfill their mission. Um, their mission was to once again, try to court the French uh, into, you know, protecting them into becoming their overlords when they made this trip, it was coincidentally enough uh, timed out exactly when the British had sent a delegation to invest King Henry III into the order of the garter. And so <laughs> the British were, uh, they, they had this huge coterie of, um, uh, of Brits for this huge ceremony in France. And they put on this ballet to, uh, you know, commemorate the, this huge ceremony or whatever. Um, and then also the, uh, the Spanish were there. Uh, the Spanish were keeping very close tabs on this whole thing. The Pope had sent folks. Uh, Savoy had sent folks. And so everybody in Europe basically knew that the Dutch were coming, even though they tried to keep it a secret. And we're here spying on the Dutch because everybody needed to know what was, you know, what was happening with, uh, with, with the French-Dutch ally uh, agreement. And so there are letters um, from, the delegate, from the Dutch delegation back home uh, reporting on like, dude, we can't get anything done. Like we're constantly getting spied on. Like there's British people hiding behind tapestries, like trying to listen <laughs> into like what's going on. Like it's, it's this ridiculous uh, comic affair. Right. 
And so things, uh, the English specifically had a spy reporting to Francis Walsingham. And we have uh, document, documentation of their correspondence that the, the head of the spy network uh, for, for Britain was uh, <laughs> that he had a guy uh, reporting on this because it was really important for them to, uh, to know exactly how these things were turning out um, because the British, their plan at the time, what, uh, what the queen was being advised to do, the number one plan was to marry the Duke of Anjou. That was what they were, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, to marry um, King Henry III. That's what they were, they were going for because if they out and out just declared for, uh, for the Dutch, it would have thrust them into war with Spain right off the bat, no holds barred. And that was uh, not advised at that time, right? That would have been a bad move. And so they were kind of trying to keep it low key and, uh, you know, force a situation where, well, we can help, but it's only because, you know, of this, this, this marriage between these two rulers, that would have been a better deal for them. Um, and so the British were very interested in how the, uh, this delegation was getting along. Right. As we know, soon after this, the Spanish uh, intervened uh, as far as the British position, British position goes anyway, by sending the Spanish Armada. I was going to ask, isn't this around that time? Yeah, it is uh, just a little time after uh, this delegation returned. That is when the Spanish made their uh, made their big move and uh, failed miserably. Can you imagine how much for not just how different, but and I'm mostly jesting how much better the world would be if <laughs> if they would have just wrecked in England? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Well, and we were like, we were really fucking close too. Cause like if, <laughs> if any, basically if anything would have gone different uh, in, in this Dutch trip, mm-hmm. um, we would be living in a different world. It, it would be a, a very different situation because like if, if France and the Dutch did end up allying um, and that took the heat off of Britain and uh, thrust it toward uh, France, who knows how that one would have worked out. That one would have been, you know, that would have been hot. And if the uh, the British, you know, smelled weakness and uh, handled their end of things differently and just overtly allied with the Dutch um, instead of doing all these covert like weapons shipments and gunpowder shipments, you know, it it could have turned out different. And boy, what a strange world it could have been. Um, and so that's just like a, a kind of brief overview of the whole thing. There were a couple of other. Oh, let me find it in my notes. As you're looking that up, um, I think, was it William of Orange? Uh, isn't there a whole legacy dating back to that with like the Orangemen, the Orange Order, like multiple secret societies of like British chicanery relating to the orange stuff, right? Like You can just say British pederasty. <laughs> you don't have to dance around. It pretty much goes without saying. Yeah, monster. I think we're all we're all pilled on that. I really thought William the Silent was like a hard ass nickname. <laughs> it is pretty badass, right? Like the implication is uh, of like the toughest guy in the bar. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. like watching it, doing ocular pat downs on everybody. <laughs> it's who Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be. <laughs> okay, so I'm just gonna continue on because that pretty much gives you a, a, a nice little summary of the Spanish situation, right? So we're going to zoom out from that point uh, now that we've kind of delved into that particular event where uh, Pynchon mentions this guy, Jan Hinkart, what he was actually doing and uh, how important that could have been uh, and really how it was anyway, because uh, that failure in its own right uh, 
shaped the future of Dutch colonialism, of, uh, of English colonialism, and led to uh, a huge defeat for the Spanish Empire. And so to kind of zoom out, we have a Spanish gentleman uh, in the book, of course, uh, Mr. Tristero. Um, we have a Spanish gentleman attempting to claim the position of a postmaster who has in turn taken the position of Leonard I, Baron of Taxis, right? Another character that is mentioned uh, in this general section of Crying of Lot 49 is Alexandrin of Rye, who is the wife of Leonard II, Baron of Taxis. She was actually the person who has been credited with having the first black chamber in all of Europe. I don't know what that is. So, Now explain to people what a black chamber is. So when she took over temporarily uh, the duties of uh, postmistress uh, instead of postmaster, um, she started an operation uh, uh, for opening mail. She was uh, oh, and and not just like at you know any random spot like uh, Brussels where she was set up was like the main uh, like nexus of like uh, <laughs> mail transfer, um, and so she ha- she was privy to all kinds of secret information uh, because she was reading everybody's goddamn mail. And there was only like one guy who suspected anything. Uh, it was a, a, a British dude. And he had like voiced his concerns because he was, he was onto her, but nobody believed him because she was a woman. <laughs> and so she totally, <laughs> she got away with running the first like mail opening operation on a mass scale. Girl boss. Chauvinism. I'll get you every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's funny, right? Because like I talked about a black chamber with like the William Stevenson episodes that I did a while back. Yeah. And like some people might know about like the CIA's mail opening program. It was revealed in the 70s. And then you trace it back and you keep going back and you're like, well, when did this start? <laughs> and then you keep going back and you go all the way all the way back to what you're saying, Boyd. That's like when it started. Everyone has been always reading mail the entire time. Yes. And, you know, it's what, or what was the quote about like, oh, well, gentlemen don't open each other's mail. Yeah, yeah they do. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> of course they do. Like, we're, you know, when you're, when you're talking about something as significant as like ma- building and maintaining an empire, nobody really actually gives a shit if it's gentlemanly. Like that's mm-hmm. not, that's not even right. part of the, you're going to say that that's part of the equation because you have to save face, mm-hmm. but nobody's going to even blink at the idea of opening, uh, opening mail in mass when it means, you know, your empire collapsing. And so I, I thought that that was definitely of note that, uh, the, this lady who has mentioned, uh, <laughs> actually operated the first black chamber in Europe. So she's mentioned in the crying of lot 49. She is. Yeah, Alexander Navrai is mentioned by name. Uh, and that was one of the, like, I made a list of names mentioned yeah. in the book. And I was like, okay, well, who is this? And I found this, uh, this article. I was like, oh my God, what the hell? <laughs> like, what are the chances? I mean, obviously pretty good considering it's pension that we're talking about. Uh, right, right. And it's one of those things where like, like I mentioned before, um, once you start going down these rabbit holes, you, you're just beset by all of these coincidences that are they're not coincidences he knew what he was talking about the man was a walking encyclopedia and it's Mm -hmm. you have to just stand there and marvel at his ability to put all of this together in such a way that these academics can read it and go oh the magic of language 
And then if you do it the right way, you realize, good Lord, he's created like a, uh, like a workable uh, wilderness of mirrors. Like it's, it's one that you can actually find your way through to a certain degree. If you have the stamina for it. It reminds me of um, on the episode that you did with uh, Bill and Boltzmann booty, where Mm. um, Bill mentions like the whole human error uh, component of doing research where it's like oh well it's just goose we just messed up but like if all of the human errors point to one thing mm-hmm. then maybe like it's not really an error <laughs> yeah plausible deniability with pension it's like exactly it's, it's like it's the same it is plausible deniability for him because the academics be like oh well you know he's just he's just picking names out of a hat but then like what you're doing you know, you look at the names and it's like, oh, yeah, no, they're 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 like they're arrows, they're springboards. Like the Dutch James Jesus Angleton that he just pulls out of the hat. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Oh, whoops. I just happened to, you know, name. Yeah. The first snooper. And I would argue I would argue that like it's it, this isn't just an isolated thing because like he talks about it in the uh, in the careers tragedy. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, like Genji's Cohen. Um, talks about some of the Dutch stuff and we've got the Diocletian blob um, stuff talking about the Dutch stuff, but um, also like the Maas river and Maas dam. Uh, like those are uh, really important uh, Dutch area, a Dutch river and uh, a Dutch uh, city. And then also um, Metz is another one we've got. So Metzger. Oh. Adipa mm. Maas. And uh, yeah. And so like, he's, I, I feel like, he is kind of leaving these uh, these breadcrumbs in this direction as well. So for the listeners, just to make your point a little clearer for them, like the main character is named Oedipa Moss. Yeah. And Moss, of course, you're saying like there, there's a Dutch connection that should be making readers think about the Dutch situation. Right. And uh, the article that uh, CJ brought up um, by Hollander, um, this is, I think, like he mentioned, one of the things that he highlights is the idea that um, names are incredibly important in pension. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They might seem to be silly, like, oh, Boyd Beaver. It's a, it's a <laughs> genital joke. Like, and right. some of them are. Uh, but then others, it, it, it's critical. And I think one of the points that he makes is that when you see these names pop up, when you're following one of these rabbit holes, that usually means that you're, you're following correctly. And so I would argue that, uh, you know, there's there's something to uh, him wanting you to focus a little bit on uh, the importance of the Dutch situation uh, by leaving the the, the Mets for Metzger and uh, Maz for Oedipa. It's like he is making like this complicated labyrinth, you know, partially of mirrors. But like you said, both of you, I think like it leads somewhere. Right. It doesn't lead nowhere. It doesn't lead in every direction. It leads towards a certain point and like right academics don't get to that point but like no it does go somewhere right i, I love this it's like he's sorting the wheat from the chaff like with mm. the with, with the jokes yeah. that he made, like the poop eating jokes and stuff like that filters mm-hmm. out certain people and then like you know making these obscure oblique references that filters out other folks and so he's really it's you know only people that are committed are gonna end <laughs> up getting to you know the meat of it, what he's actually talking about. Oh, I did want to say too, because I know we like we know 
just from his life that uh, Thomas Pynchon did, in fact, take a class from Vladimir Nabokov, right? Mm-hmm. And Nabokov said that within fiction, like all his fiction, and he wrote about this, is like this, this complicated puzzle and that he actually, Nabokov does, writes these essentially like moral points or like lessons or like there is like a purpose to like this like novel about a pedophile or whatever, you know, or like, and that he argues in one of his lectures that a lecture that Pynchon probably took, he argues that people only value things they have to work for. And so Pynchon is not just saying, hey, check out the Dutch situation if you want to understand the modern world, which I think there is value to people saying things simply. There's also value in saying things in a complicated way. Absolutely. 100%. No, I couldn't agree more because I mean, when you lay it out, when you just you know make it super easy for anybody to just like uh, pick it up, they're going to think that they have a better comprehension of it than they actually do most likely. Um, whereas if you structure it in such a way where they actually have to dig for uh, things and learn it for themselves and really put in that work, you're going to have a more complete understanding of it. I'm reminded of an old Florida saying, <laughs> give a man a fish he'll eat for a day teach a man to fish he'll eat a lot (laughs) spoken like a true floridian man that's that's beautiful i'm not sure if you've heard that one before (laughs) i mean i i might have heard it in passing when i was living down there but uh i guess when you were down here yeah you probably everybody says it all the time that oh okay well yeah i I probably you know picked it up at one point but just forgot about it i don't know how Mm mm-hmm some regional variants say he'll eat a lot of fish a lot of the time, but. <laughs> uh, um, so to kind of get back, uh, aside from the, uh, the Alexander and Avry thing, um, another point uh, that I wanted to make was that we're given context elsewhere in the book that tells us that uh, Tristero is basically doing like false flags and covert attacks. Uh, for example, like dressing as Indians um, and attacking Pony Express riders. We've got the, you know, the, the whole theme of them like dressing in black and striking, you know, in uh, unexpected ways and uh, you know, very silently all that jazz. And so I think it's fair to speculate that uh, the point that he's making with the original Tristero in the book is that uh he was a span. It was an, a Spanish attempt at infiltration of the uh, the rebel government, because we've got this guy showing up of Spanish origin that is attempting to uh, claim the the spot of the of the new postmaster. And so, if you were going to infiltrate a rebel government, the most important point that you could infiltrate at is at the head of their communications network. Uh, that's mm-hmm. how you would be privy to all of their. Uh, all of their knowledge, all of their plans, all that jazz. And so it's definitely interesting to me that that's how he chooses to introduce Tristro into the the equation is that uh, he's a Spanish person attempting to take this position. There's also like a weird interplay where like Pynchon isn't just like sort of uh, short-sightedly being like, okay, well, you know, if you're a rebel here, that means you're a rebel there. Like, right. Right? Like, there's this interplay where, like, what could be a good subversive thing here could be, like, the forces of reaction here. 
Yeah. And like, it's just too complicated to say either way. Like, right. He doesn't come right out and say like, Oh, uh, rebellion is always good. And mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the main powers that be are always bad. He understands that uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. And that's one of the things that like struck me is I remember like when I first read this book being like, Oh yeah, Tristero good turn in Texas bad. But he, yeah, he, he doesn't give that to you at all. And I think a lot of people who read it just, you know, again, they want it to be simple. They want it to be, to fit their conception of things, but um, like, especially I think it's hard too, because with Tristero being um, like uh, how, how it signifies like the dejected class, like masses in America, like it's easy to want it to be good, but it's like, you know, I don't know. It reminds me almost of like the counterforce in Gravity's Rainbow. Um, mm. Yes. You know, this very, you know, maybe probably ambiguously good, maybe, you know? Yep. Yeah. So uh, to zoom out just a little bit more and kind of uh, make an insinuation here, <laughs> what we're generally looking at um, in this, this story that Pynchon is telling is we're seeing a land possessed by a powerful colonial empire, Spain, um, that has recently broken free of its shackles, the the Dutch there, um, that is attempting to court a power that rivals its former masters. Um, We're seeing assassination attempts and successes by fanatics. Uh, We see a black or secret organization that feels disinherited. Oh, and now would be a good time to mention that uh, part of the the Dutch uh, ploy for getting uh, France involved in their struggle was uh, claiming that France, uh, that Dutch, the Dutchlands, the Lowlands uh, belonged to France in the first place and that Henry III was disinherited of them by the Spanish. And so he should ally with them. So we do have the claim that Henry III was disinherited of his, uh, of his estates, which is a major theme of the, 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 the Tristro thing in the book. So we've got, um, you know, the, the disinheritance theme, uh, them trying to infiltrate a revolutionary government and assassinate its leader and notable figures. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that Crying of Lot 49 is about, you know, the JFK assassination and Cuba specifically, but this feels a lot to me like a parallel for what was going on uh, with Cuba at the time. Mm. That really enriches the JFK angle to say that there's this Cuba component because Lord knows the Cuba thing figured prominently in the JFK thing, right? That whole Bay of Pigs thing. Right. Yeah. The, the Bay of Pigs thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I just, uh, this time when I was reading that and I was doing, you know, uh, reading about the, the whole Dutch situation, it, that kind of struck me. Cause I know we had been talking about like, well, I, I don't know, is the, is there something salient, uh, about the JFK argument? Like, uh, could the book be reasonably interpreted as, uh, being commentary on the JFK assassination? And, uh, this component kind of added weight to that in my mind that you know he's telling this very important historical story but the way that he lays it out with the the one fake character that he introduces because all of the other people that he talks about in the uh the dutch component uh they're all real that's that's a good point that's a good point yeah and so by adding in the tristero thing uh you you actually you you basically form this parallel the the cuban parallel Hmm. so i thought that was kind of an interesting point oh yeah it's very interesting that that you have the Dr. Pig Bodine stamp of approval. Excellent. That's all I was hoping for. Program to chill approved. <laughs> hey, all right. 
And so I only have one more, uh, one more little story. Um, that, that, that's it for the Dutch deal. I'm sure I left something out. And as soon as we finish up, I'm going to go, God damn it. I forgot to bring that up. <laughs> but, uh, while I was doing this, I came across this, uh, this fantastic video. Um, it's an interview with Johannes von Turnen Taxis. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that was really great. And then there's another story that involves him. Um, but I'll start with, um, just a small bit of information about Johannes von Turnen Taxis. Um, he was a child during world war II. Uh, obviously he is related to the folks who had the post monopoly during world war II, his father came out against Hitler, but was spared execution because his family was so prominent, but they turned the family home into like a base. And what they ended up doing was they, uh, because they couldn't like just outright execute the family without facing severe public backlash. They made the home look like an airstrip and, uh, and like command center so that the allies would bomb it. (laughs) 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 oh that's funny and it worked the allies did end up bombing because they thought that it was a a nazi air base but the whole family survived and so uh that that didn't exactly work out and they kind of ended up with egg on their face a little bit because the whole family was like did you guys um try to murder us (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and so after world war ii uh johannes became a banker And funnily enough, was told by his family that it was like beneath him (laughs) (laughs) to become a banker was like, oh, come on, you're a, you know, you're a turn in taxes. But he did and ended up becoming one of the richest men in Europe. Um, He was a bachelor for an inordinate amount of time. And in this interview, it's brought up like they asked him, like, so like, are you going to like get married? Like you're, (laughs) you know, you're getting up there in age like you should, you know, whatever. Uh, And it it's not touched on in the video, but he was a. uh very bisexual party man like that was like his whole thing was just like uh ah nice that's everybody who's dutch fucking anything that moved uh hey boy i i'm trying to remember because i know for a fact that uh was it i think i forget the name but one of the crops partied with right it's it's this guy yes sir yep yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were they were very good friends. Uh, one, him and one of the one of the Krupp boys, one of the fail sons. <laughs> do you think? Do you think they smashed? I I mean, come on, they had to, have, right? <laughs> like that's it would be so very German. Uh, there, there's no way they could have avoided doing it. Nice. Um, and one of the things that he does bring up in the video, and like I'll have to like post a link to this video when it comes out. It's only like 20 minutes and it's fucking hilarious. He's like giving a tour of his house to some American businessmen and is showing them his whip collection. Oh my god. Fuck. Oh yeah. And says something to the, he says something to the effect of like, uh, yeah, this is for when you need to whip something. <laughs> super weird. It's super duper weird. One of the parties that he uh, that he threw that um, <laughs> no, this isn't in the video. This is in the article that I'll talk about in a second. Um, he had a birthday party attended by uh, Mick Jagger. Oh, yeah. And Malcolm Forbes and a couple other folks. And that's where my uh, my, my profile picture on Twitter for the last couple of months has been a photo of Mick Jagger and I think the like one of the other Stones and Jagger's girlfriend all dressed in like Victorian like powdered wig type shit. It's yep. super weird. Like I get oh, like yeah. eyes wide shut vibes from this whole thing. Like this the turn in taxes, uh 
We should have done a Dutro check to see if... <laughs> right. Yeah, for real. I can't imagine who was at these parties and what happened. It's literally plaguing my nightmares. Oh, yeah. But the story that, uh, that I wanted to tell that, was, that I found on this website was it started off giving a description of like the history of uh, the turn in taxes post-monopoly and uh, telling a little bit about the, the French rival um, uh, postal company that started up in the, I want to say it was late 1600s. And like, as they both grew, they reached a point where they needed each other's help. And so there's this nexus point in Paris at this one specific building. And they, they worked together, although they were still rivals for a really long time. It was La Poste that I mentioned earlier, and then Turn and Taxis. Um, they, they kind of came together and had this nexus at this building in Paris. And years and years later, there's this fashion student uh, that's living in Paris, and he makes the acquaintance of Johannes uh at a uh at a fashion show mm-hmm. and then uh they're like they're you know chatting it up about uh the history of the the postal services um because this guy knows a little bit about it and you know they're talking about telecommunications because this guy's interested in telecommunications and as they're kind of getting friendlier johannes tells this guy hey you, you know this this cafe that you're looking at it costs about half as much as uh my my girlfriend would spend on a cocktail dress let me just buy it for you and so he does. He buys him this uh, this little cafe, and they try to turn it into a um, a boutique for selling phones. Uh, at this point, this is before cell phones. It's like he's trying to sell uh, home Sony brand home phones that have like an answering machine built in, and it's like this hot item. And this is in France. This is in France. This is in Paris. Uh, this is the, the building that was the nexus uh, between Turn and Taxis and the, the postal company of uh, France, La Poste. He, he gets a cafe in this building, right? And he's trying to sell these phones, but then like it turns out they're like blocked by uh, customs in France. And so they have to like reorient themselves. And there's this huge rigmarole where like Johannes ends up eventually dying. And so they're like, oh man, what are we going to do? And then there's this old lady that Johannes had introduced to the young man that is trying to set up this shop. And it turns out she was a uh, Brazilian spy during World War II <laughs> who was friends with one of the Romanovs, was friends with Alexander Graham Bell and uh, a couple other notable figures of history. And she ends up selling a jewel that was given to her by uh, Coco Chanel. What? Who uh, was given the jewel by the Romanov prince to finance the purchase of this building for them to turn into an internet cafe? Oh my gosh. Coco Chanel probably stole that from a freaking Jew, probably. <laughs> That's what she did. Like. Almost certainly. And it was, it was Dmitry Romanov. Oh my gosh. Who I have, uh, I, I don't know too much about it, but I'm pretty sure he like helped assassinate Rasputin. Nice. <laughs> 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 so like that's uh just you know fun fact uh it was the first internet cafe in paris and it was funded by this this jewel that was given to coco chanel by <laughs> dimitri romanov <laughs> there's a, there's a nice there's a nice like lineage uh, from romanov to chanel to brazilian spy to co-mingling with like DARPA at an internet cafe. That's a really beautiful little synchronicity. Oh, it's just fantastic, man. 
you love to see it is what it all comes down to. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of that, probably like turn in taxes, like banks probably funded all the like French DARPA equivalent. How much you want to bet? Yep. 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 Oh yeah. And there was, there was one other dude that came into this that I'm trying to look for his name. I was like unfamiliar with him, but his name ran or it like rang a bell, but I'm having a hard time locating it again. Cause this, the, the article I'll, I'll, I'll post this too. Um, Cause it's a fascinating story, but it's so poorly set up and it's like, it must be like translated by Google translate from French to English. It's just, it's an absolute nightmare. Buzz Aldrin pops up at one point. Oh boy. Like it's, it's one of the most ridiculous stories. Cause it like, it starts off. What does he do? I think he just like visited them or something. Like it wasn't anything like from from one up to another. Yeah, it it goes all over the board, man. Because it starts <laughs> off as just like this normal like history of like postal networks, and then all of a sudden it's like, so yeah, I met Johannes uh, von Turn and Taxis, and he bought me a cafe, and then Coco Chanel's jewel financed the rest of the. Like it's it, it, it's a real clusterfuck. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, that's uh that, that that's my little story. Amazing. <laughs> well done. Very, very well done. I did want to add with, uh, in terms of like communications networks, um, you know, uh, a while back I did that interview with Rob McKenzie, uh, who talked about the uh, Ford uh, plant in Mexico that had the sort of like coup and everything. And yeah, that was great. (laughs) In his book, he talks about how specifically the communications union was just caked through with uh informant would be the wrong word like uh plants or agents or um yeah well it's 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 always had to be that way yeah you know like it it is literally the most important aspect like uh, to to go back to the the venice thing the way that they had their intelligence organization organization set up um everybody knew like what protocol was and so mm-hmm. the way that it functioned, because they were spread out over, you know, such a, uh, a disparate area, it was all letter writing, mm-hmm. updating on conditions uh, and then referencing, you know, OK, well, in this situation, I do this. Uh, it, it ran itself, but it didn't run itself without the communications networks like that was that was entirely critical to the entire way that it was set up. And there's a more direct lineage from the uh, the Venetian way of doing things than there are any of the other intelligence organizations. And so, like it's it's just it's critical to understand the importance of communications networks and not just like in modernity but like back in the fucking 16th century like it's that entire time it's been super important (laughs) yeah hells yeah all right well okay how are you guys doing you guys need a break because i don't Um, i'm good yeah I'm outside. So now that I'm done talking for a moment, I can, yeah, it's all good. Cool. Cool. Um, let's see here. I, so I have my thing that I'll get into in a second, but I did want to say with the concept of ambiguity, kind of going back to what CJ was talking about, how like these academics can like ascertain that like ambiguity is an important theme and Pynchon is swimming in it. He's exploring it. He's, like you said, like getting his hands dirty with ambiguity and like they, they can, they can discern that, right? What they don't seem to appreciate 
is how ambiguity and becoming conversant in it and fluent in it, right? Almost like it's a language, how that can actually be a useful tool, a useful weapon, right? And I don't have anything prepared for this, but I'm just going off of memory. James Jesus Angleton. A lot of people remember that he, or some people might know that he was really, really into poetry. Oh yeah, he didn't he like publish or something with like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and he corresponded with them. Yeah, and what else? Yeah, he ran a magazine. He was like the editor of a of a magazine. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And he was all about it. And I think maybe he even had some essays or something in where he talks about ambiguity and like nuance and like these different things. And wouldn't you know? he got into counterintelligence where ambiguity was his bread and butter. Ambiguity was what counterintelligence is all about. Right. Cause like there's all types of intelligence and like the most important type realistically is just like signals intelligence where you're just intercepting and reading people's mail and like reading people's like emails and you know, whatever. Right. Intercepting their satellites. But for specifically counterintelligence, it's like reading a message between two spies and then trying to discern if there's a subtext, you know, like mm-hmm. this or that, like looking at a pattern of events and trying to figure out if there's more than meets the eye, all of this stuff. So the point is doing that, like there's a reason why the CIA was basically formed out of like the Yale's English department. Right, right. It's not that this is just complete wanking, right? There are valuable tools and lessons to be learned from like doing literary criticism in a serious way. And they think it's important, but somehow what we get is slop, right? (laughs) We're getting slop. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I just, I I think that your point about like literary criticism, like that kind of rigorous analysis of a text is highly valuable. And you can tell that Pynchon demands that of his readers, but it's just, I think it's extremely telling that somehow the academics both managed to acknowledge that demand and then completely failed to meet it. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. When did uh, do either of you guys know when Angleton died? He lived a while, um, maybe in like the eighties. I can just look it up real quick. Yeah, I wonder if he ever read any pension. I was just about to say, can you imagine uh, <laughs> James Sue's <laughs> Angleton sitting there reading "Crying of Lot 49 and being like, "Fuck, god damn it, this fucker, shit, god damn it, <laughs> like." this fucking guy maybe we can i don't know i'll, I'll have some assholes like write some really ridiculous you know literary criticisms <laughs> of it and throw people off the trail like i can call in a few favors but like fuck we can't have people actually like understanding the nuance to this book yeah um he died in 1987 so oh yeah so he definitely <laughs> he definitely read that shit <laughs> imagine him reading gravity's rainbow yeah right and I wonder why pensions are recluse. Yeah. 
Oh shit, he calls me out by name. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I did want to say, you know who is super Dutch pilled? The LaRouche people. Really? <laughs> They're all about that, like British secretly rule the world. They talk about the opium, you know, they yeah. talk about the Dutch East Indies company. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are when you like get into <laughs> they they talk about the dutch um and i do think that just speaking generally and broadly the dutch are seriously understudied uh in world war ii with like shell they're understudied mm-hmm. with everything boyd has talked about they're understudied with colonialism 100 percent, yeah Across the board, like I'm sure there there's all kinds of other angles to the Dutch that are just super understudied. Doesn't Heart of Darkness take place in a Dutch colony? Yeah, Belgian Congo, right? Or that's I mean Well, I mean, but yeah, like a lot of the Belgian stuff is probably like either way, Northwest Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of atmosphere. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere that the Dutch colonies were the most violent and vicious and savage. I could see that being true in certain times and places, yeah. Yeah, this was during, like, the 19th century. Yeah, like, wasn't, like, yeah, like, Leopold II was really uh, truly awful. No, he was, like, legitimately both a pedophile and obviously, like, a mass murderer. Like, crazy. Yeah. But that was Belgium, I think. Shit. Whatever. Whatever. They're they're all bad. Northwest Europe. It's related. It's related. My... My takeaway from all this is if you whip the people you love, what do you do to the people you hate? Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? We're no, coming out strong against BDSM. Oh yeah. Hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Again, we need to normalize kink shaming. I've been saying it for years. No, it's the only way forward. <laughs> this is a necessary step in the development. And it's not, it is not a bit like people have gotten way too comfortable we need to bring back some of that shame. No, I saw somebody the other day asking like, oh, well, like, which ones? And it's like, no, all of them. All of them. It's it's all fine. <laughs> yeah, that was on one of my posts. I was like, yeah, I was like, I was like, if you're asking that question, like, whatever you're thinking of probably needs to be, like, shamed. Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> no, if you can't, if you can't stand up to the critique, then I mean, what you're doing is probably wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I might cut this part, but like I, <laughs> next weekend, I am recording an episode. I'm I'm going to be a guest on the probably canceled podcast. Oh no, shit! Yeah, like the they're Marxist feminist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're going to do the history of pornography. Oh boy! Hell yeah! Not not like the total history, obviously, but like no, but. It's like she is it Bridget or Bridget or whatever? Yeah, she's going to do yeah, she's cool. some yeah, she is. She's gonna do some stuff on like Hugh Hefner and Playboy, which I haven't really looked at, so I'm really excited to that. Or I haven't looked at in depth. And then I am going to talk about the monopoly on hardcore pornography that existed before the internet. Oh dude, that's gonna be lit. Nice. I'm very interested in the Hugh Hefner stuff because, like, didn't Robert Anton Wilson work for Playboy? Like, wasn't that uh, like who he wrote for before he started uh, like writing novels and shit? I think that might be right. 
You sure did. I was going to say, I think I remember somebody talking about that being like, uh, he kept getting like tips about like crazy, uh, like, co- like he got tipped about COINTELPRO. Tipped. Tipped. Mm-hmm. And uh, ignored it. Right. Yeah. Like he was, he kept ignoring all these things and then used it for Illuminatus. Yeah. And that's of course where he like started to try to bring back the Illuminati meme. Right. All that fuckery. <laughs> I don't get me wrong. I, en- I enjoy that book, but like, haven't read what it. dog shit, dude. It, it's, <laughs> it's good. It's, 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 it's enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It's got some, it's got some good stuff. There's a couple of, I mean, there's a couple of paragraphs at least that are like, oh, all right, that's useful. The rest of it's just fuckery. Yeah. And then I was going to say, too, before I do my thing, um, you know, Monty, I did the uh, Templar episode with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did, we recorded, we have in the bag, a five-hour Illuminati episode. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Where I, together, we come to the conclusion that the Illuminati was based in good (laughs) and that it constituted, like, a proto-proletarian uprising, like a enlightenment thing it was good mm-hmm. a conspiracy of the people blah 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 like i have been saying this <laughs> ever since i read weishaupt i was like you know what actually it's not that bad <laughs> it's not that bad <laughs> I'm, I'm never gonna live it down that i'm a pro illuminati podcast <laughs> <laughs> yo oh man well okay. no that's a, you know that's the thing about misinformation and disinformation it's just you know you end up getting wrapped up in these these narratives of like oh well, the illuminati they run jay-z and jay-z's actually and it's all just like right-wing bullshit vigilant citizen right <laughs> yeah yeah like who told you the illuminati was bad it was a bunch of right-wing catholic psychopaths like yes <laughs> yes there you go also not to um i mean you could maybe bring this up on the episode but uh pornography features very prominently in gravity's rainbow for disseminating Mm -hmm. intelligence yeah do you remember i think doesn't he they have to like come on the picture and it shows the invisible (laughs) yeah yeah i forgot about that i need to yeah gravity's rainbow man yeah no it's straight up like that's like and and he talks about how and this is like extremely prescient but he's like the intelligence agencies in Europe during World War II, they have figured out what every person's deepest fantasy is. And they'll send them the like pornography that is that fantasy mm. as like some kind of like sedative thing, I think, like to like, you know, like, I mean, not. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To bring this back to pension. Hells, yeah. Pension is porn pilled. <laughs> <laughs> and that is like oh man that's good because i mostly was doing the organized crime side because it's easier but there's so much more with the intelligence side that i just haven't found the research yet i know i know it's there because it's all it, it is it's all the same thing every yeah. it, it's all the same goddamn thing there's the, <laughs> you you don't go anywhere with organized crime without touching on the intelligence thing and vice mm-hmm. versa. And it's all wrapped up in capital. And like anybody that fails to understand this is doomed to like, Oh, Illuminati's bad for the rest of their lives. Exactly. By the right wing bullshit. Um, for the record, I CJ do not condone any of the views expressed by this song. I don't think pension does either. 
One, two, three, four. Chance has a lonely surfer boy for the love of a surfer chick. With all these Humbert Humbert cats coming on, so big and sick. For me, my baby was a woman. For him, she's just another nymphette. Why did they run around? Why did she put me down and get me so upset? Well, as long as she's gone away. I've had to find somebody new And the older generation Has taught me what to do I had a date last night With an eight year old And she's a swinger just like me So you can find us any night Up on the football field In back of PS33 Oh yeah and it's as groovy It's as groovy as can be 